I will be reading from the book of Daniel, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down in worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thanks, Eugene. Thank you, Rob, and the rest of the team. Appreciate you guys. Morning. My name is uh, Frank. Uh, I will be the one leading in the word this morning. Uh, before we do that, let me pray, uh, and then we'll start to get into it. Gracious and holy God, I pray that uh, this morning that um, the people you have assembled here this morning will be blessed, not only by the music and the praise and the worship through music, but also by the praise and the worship through the study of your word. And God, I was uh, re reminded profoundly this week that uh, uh, there is uh, no amount of human preparation that is going to do any good in the study of your word, the proclamation of your gospel, unless you're here, you are present. Your spirit is moving. And the power of your resurrected son is leading. And so, God, I just pray that you would move this morning. We pray this so that you would be glorified. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, before we get started, it's Daniel chapter 3, by the way. If you want to go ahead and, and turn there, it's page 480 in the Bibles that you find underneath the chairs. And uh, by the way, for those of you who are new today, we welcome you. We're glad that you are here. Uh, I have a, something, a little something that I need to talk about for just a minute so that you understand kind of what's going on. Uh, it's interesting news. We were discussing, do we classify this as good news or bad? I don't know, but it's just interesting news. Um, you, many of you notice, if you're regular here, you notice that uh, Sean Johnson is, is not here this morning. Rob is leading us. Uh, the reason for that is that uh, Tyler Johnson, many of you know him as well, and Sean Johnson, no relation, those of you that know them, uh, are over at a church in Scottsdale called Old Town Bible Church. Some of you know that church. It's been around about uh, nine years. In fact, Sean's father uh, planted that church nine years ago, and uh, about six years ago, they called a new pastor there. His name is Heath Taylor, and a number of our people here have relationships with people over at Old Town and with Heath, and, and uh, many of the people from Old Town Bible attended our, our uh, Good Friday service as well, and and so we're kind of familiar with each other. Um, Heath Taylor is a Marine. Now, I've been instructed, those of you that are Marines, there is no such thing as a former Marine. So he is a Marine who just isn't on active duty right now, but he was, he's been pastoring this church the last six years, and he has been called back into the military. He is going to become a Navy chaplain now, and he's going to be starting that in um, August. And so Heath and the elders of Old Town Bible got together, and prayed, spent a lot of time working through this, and they discerned that rather than trying to call a new pastor to Old Town Bible, that they would uh, dissolve the church. By the way, the church is, is, is very healthy. 
uh, especially those of you that know the church, you realize this, lots of young families and little kids, but they decided they were going to dissolve the church instead, and uh, Heath and the elders uh, were going to encourage uh, the people who attend Old Town Bible to uh, come over and be grafted into uh, Redemption Arcadia. And so that's going to be happening over the next several weeks. It'll probably start sometime around the end of July, early August. Uh, now, it's not going to be like there's a, a thousand people who are going to be flooding in here. It's nothing like that. Uh, but you will probably notice, uh, those of you who have been around, you'll probably notice some new people and, and uh, we have new people every week, but you'll also, it'll be kind of like new people that seem to know what they're doing, I guess. I don't know. Maybe that's what it is because they're kind of familiar with us. Um, but uh, I would encourage you as you're talking to new people, which many of you do and do so well, uh, if you hear that they're com they've come over from Old Town Bible, be sure to uh, just let them know that they are certainly welcomed here. We're glad that they're here, and, and uh, it's a really exciting time. There's some, I've already met some of the people who are coming over. I know Heath, the pastor there. And uh, just really good stuff, really good people, and, and we are excited for that. So be praying for them in their transition. Uh, obviously, change is always a challenge. It is always difficult. So be praying for them in their transition, but also be uh, welcoming as you always are here. So I uh, just kind of wanted to let you know what was going on with that. Now, let's get into week three of the Daniel section of the series Faithful. Give you a little bit of a review about... 2,600 years ago, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon went into uh, Jerusalem and Judah and besieged it, and, and in 605 B.C., he carried away about 70,000 of the Israelites who were living in Judah, uh, left uh, several other thousand there, but carried 70,000 away, and, and uh, of those 70,000 that were carried away, a few of the sharper young men, Daniel and his buddies, I call them the boys, uh, even when they become men, I still refer to them as the boys, but they were uh, taken out of the exiles in order to be trained and serve uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, and they were taken out as young boys. They were taken out as 13, 14-year-olds, uh, and, and so they started to serve Nebuchadnezzar, and last week we saw in chapter 2 that uh, a young Daniel, about a 14-year-old Daniel, was called in to uh, interpret a dream for Nebuchadnezzar, and he gave him the interpretation and did a very nice job uh, there, and Nebuchadnezzar went away very happy. And uh, we talked a lot last week about prayer, and I just felt compelled, especially since uh, I came across this interesting um, quote from Corey Ten Boom. Uh, to, I just wanted to, uh, we talked a lot about prayer, and I want to mention it one more time. This is a great quote that I wish I had had last week. Here's what she wrote at one time. She said, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? And we talked a lot about that last week, how even in the 21st century, we should know better as people who follow Christ, and yet so often we will end a conversation with the words, well, we've done everything we can do. I guess the only thing left to do is pray. And that would be the spare tire approach to prayer rather than making sure that it's our steering wheel. I'll give you a little preview for today. In chapter 3, things begin to heat up, so to speak, and Daniel and his crew have now moved into positions of power, and so envy with the other wise men is beginning to reach a boiling point, and there is no Daniel in today's uh, episode, today's chapter, but his friends are certainly front and center and, and uh, involved, and they are challenged mightily by what happens today. So if you're there at Daniel chapter 3, let's get started. Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits, and he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to, I'll just call them, all the bureaucrats and all the officials of the prov provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then all the bureaucrats uh, gathered for the dedication of the image that king, the king had set up, and they stood before the image that he had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that whenever you hear the sound of any kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the music, the people of all the nations and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
Not quite all of them, but most of them did. Now, let me just give you some backdrop here. First of all, the size of this image of gold, this was pure gold that was set up. And the size in, in terms that maybe most of us can understand is that this was 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. So this thing took a number of years to build. It was huge. It was worth a lot of money if you could ever find it in an archaeological dig. But it was, it was absolutely huge. So it's, you know, seven or eight stories high. Uh, and, and really what this is, is this is Nebuchadnezzar honoring himself. This is a, this is a way of Nebuchadnezzar setting himself up uh, as, as a person to be worshipped, just sort of indirectly through this gold image. If you remember the, the uh, dream from last week, uh, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that he was the head of gold on that big um, multimedia statue that we looked at last week. And so some people uh, project that Nebuchadnezzar thought, well, I'm not just the head of the gold, uh, the head of gold, I am all gold, and so we're going to set up this image of all gold to me. So this is Nebuchadnezzar being high on Nebuchadnezzar. And, and some people ask, well, where's the plain of Dura? The plain of Dura is actually in the province of Babylon. It's within the, it's within the city um, uh, boundaries itself. And here's what's interesting. 15, 20 years ago, I think it was, don't hold me to this date, but it was a little while ago, there was actually an archaeological dig in the area, and they found in this archaeological dig a huge platform that they dated to about uh, 2,600 years ago, uh, that most of the archaeologists say was probably the platform on which this uh, huge 90-foot image of gold stood. Now, I will say that what is happening here is, is that he is, Nebuchadnezzar has commanded the peoples to worship an idol, to bow down and worship an idol. And this is an old-school idol. It's an image or statue. Our idols today are a little bit more sophisticated and not necessarily statues or images or busts or figurines. Our idols today are things like causes and careers and power and prestige and position and wealth and popularity and approval. Our idols today are things like comfort and convenience and lifestyles. Nevertheless, we should understand that all idols function exactly the same. They are rooted in pride and self-worship. They are designed to usurp or take the place of the one true God. And we trust them to do things that they are not capable of doing. That's the worst part of an idol is we trust them to do things that they're not capable of doing. We trust our idols to protect and gratify us and to save us from whatever hell it is that we fear. We may not fear the hell of the Bible, but there, believe me, there is a functional hell in your life that you fear, and so you are desperate to try and find some idol or some false god or some false savior that is going to help you uh, be delivered from that functional hell that you want to avoid in your life. And so idols are false gods. They're false saviors. And, and here's what we need to understand. False gods never fail to fail. False gods never fail to fail. If you trust your false gods to do what they are not able to do, they will always betray you. That means if you place your faith uh, or you worship or, and praise anything other than the one true God, you are going to be disappointed and you are going to be betrayed. Now, a little side note. I find this interesting. I run into people all the time who want, because especially because I'm a pastor, they want to have a conversation about God. And, and it's interesting how people will scrutinize God, the God of the Bible, and, and they will very quickly somehow find him lacking in some way, but yet they will never hold their own idols, their own gods, their own saviors to the same standards and the same scrutinization that they hold the God of the Bible to, and therefore they never find their gods lacking even though they are, even though most people are walking around today very unhappy with their idols because they aren't delivering them the way they're supposed to be. So idols are not good. And you look at uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament throughout Scripture, you will find that God is unhappy about idols. Okay? I mean, it's included in the Ten Commandments for crying out loud. It's a bad one. And then you get into the New Testament, and both Jesus and Paul rail against idols. Again, they are very unhappy with idols. So next few verses, verses 8 through 12. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans, or more of the bureaucrats, came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. There's that ancient form of sucking up. 
You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears all this music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Well, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now imagine uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, I said last week, that one of the most insecure people in history, certainly one of the most insecure kings who has ever lived. Imagine him hearing these words. This is just striking right at the heart of his weakness, and it's going to fire him up. But go back a little bit. Do you sense a little bit of ethnic angst in this complaint that the Chaldeans have brought uh, to Nebuchadnezzar? They're upset because these outsiders, these Jews, have moved in and taken over positions of power, prestige, and influence, which means that they're messing with the idols of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, wise men. And so these guys decide to fix their wagon. Now, these boys are not bowing down for one reason, because it would be a violation of the second commandment. That's certainly one of the reasons they're not bowing down. But it, I have to tell you, it's much deeper than that. There's a deeper reason these boys are not bowing down to this idol. They're not bowing down because they have faith and confidence in God, whatever the circumstances. Warren Wiersbe, who is a new, uh, an Old Testament scholar, says that this chapter occurs about 20 years after the end of chapter 2. In other words, they've had 20 years to build this statue, and the boys have had 20 years to live in this context of oppression and trials and being marginalized and being outsiders, even though they are working for the king. But they've been there in this marginalized position as outsiders for a very, very long time and therefore have been able to watch God work in their lives. Now understand when I say that they've seen God work in their lives, understand what I'm not saying. It's not that God has made these guys rich. It's not that God has made these guys comfortable. It's not that God has made these guys powerful. It's not that God has given these guys popularity, but rather God has been faithful to them. He has provided for them, and he has protected them. And they've seen that, and they understand that. And so they understand God's faithfulness to them, and therefore they're going to return and be faithful to God as well. And listen, I want you to hear this. Obedience is hard. I get it. Take it from somebody who majors in disobedience. Obedience is very, very difficult. And we mostly hate it, not only as a word. We don't even like the word obedience. I'm just going to stand here and say obedience until you run for the exits, because it'll, it'll drive you out. We not only dislike it as a word, but also as a concept. Because it means that we have to submit ourselves to some other authority if we're going to obey something. Yet God values it. And here's why. Not only is obedience the proper response to God, you read through scripture and you can't miss that. Not only is it the proper response to God, but it is also something that will draw you closer to God. It will help you to know God better. It'll help you to be in better relationship with God. I would suggest to you that it's fair to say, based on my experience, that people who complain about God feeling distant are often, not always, but I would say often, more than the majority of the time, are often the same people who are also resisting obedience to him. I don't feel close to God. Well, when was the last time you obeyed anything that he asked of you? Well, about six months. Well, there might be a connection there between those two issues. It's simply one of those you reap what you sow truths of the Bible. And understand, the boys are not trying to pick a fight. They're not, they didn't get together and say, hey, this would be a great time to pick a fight. Because the loser gets thrown into a fiery furnace. That's what we're looking for. That's when we want to pick the fight. They're not looking to pick a fight. They just want to live their faith. But this becomes the weapon that their enemies use against them. And again, uh, it, it just it reads kind of childish, doesn't it? It seems kind of childish if you really read it through that lens. Nevertheless, it's happening. And game on now at this point. Verses 13 through 15. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. And so they brought these men before King Nebuchadnezzar. And, and, and Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, guys, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of all this music, I want you to fall down and worship the image that I have made, and then everything will be fine, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall be immediately cast into the fiery furnace. 
And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now, it's interesting to me, even though Nebuchadnezzar was angry, I mean, he was furious with rage, right? Even though he was angry, he gave them a second chance. Now, this guy was not bound by any civil rights laws or Miranda warnings or due process. This guy had a history of just throwing people into the, just into the fiery furnace and just executing them whenever he wanted to. The fact that he gave these guys a second chance tells me, at least suggests to me, that he really valued these guys and he was hoping there was just some misunderstanding and it could be corrected here. And so he gives them a second chance. But, but also, Nebuchadnezzar could not resist a little ancient trash talking, and that's what happens in verse 15. And really, Nebuchadnezzar is saying this about himself, essentially. He's saying, he's saying, listen, there is no God powerful enough. We have this pantheon, we have all these gods that we worship, but there's really no God more powerful than me. Look at the image I've set up in my honor. I'm the most powerful God. There is no God who can deliver you from my hands. And so listen now to the boy's idle response. Here it is in verses 16 through 18. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, notice they didn't say live forever. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be, if this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, but even if he doesn't deliver us, O king, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Verses 17 and 18, the entire chapter turns on those two verses. In verses 17 and 18, these boys, these men now, 20 years later, they're in their mid-30s, they proclaim God's power without presuming upon God's power. They proclaim his power without presuming upon his power. I would just suggest to you that we kind of have that backwards today, and it's time for us to confess that. We have that backwards today. I find that most of us are running around presuming upon God's power demanding God's power in our lives, expecting that God will do whatever we want, but we're actually a little reticent to proclaim it. They have it just the opposite. And I will tell you, it's a little bit more difficult to live the way they're living than it is for us to live the way we're living, even though ours, I think, is more frustrating. Now, there's some things here that we need to lean into. First of all, verse 17 is a true statement. God is able to do anything. He would have no trouble defending and rescuing this, these boys. Uh, in, in this statement, the boys assert the power of God, even in the face of the most powerful man on earth, King Nebuchadnezzar. But verse 17 is not the key verse. Verse 17 is not the amazing verse. I've been to many Daniel Bible studies, and people want to run to verse 17. Isn't verse 17? Great. See, verse 17 is the one that all of us would willingly live by if God, in fact, would rescue us every time we thought we needed to be rescued. Verse 17 is easy to live by if God would just do it our way every single time. But verse 18, this is the verse that these boys had no trouble living by, but gives you and I all kinds of trouble. Whereas verse 17 asserts the power of God, verse 18 defends the character of God. They say, listen, Nebuchadnezzar, even if he doesn't rescue us, we want you to know, even if he doesn't rescue us, we are going to stand by God no matter what he does. Even if what looks, it looks like he's not going to take care of us, we're still going to stand by him. This is where real faith comes in. There is absolutely no faith involved in God always doing what you want. None. Real faith involves God not doing what you think you need, not, not rescuing you when you think you need to be rescued, and yet you continue to stand by him. It's not hard to live as a Christ follower as long as everything is going well in our lives. It's really not. Peter addresses this in 1 Peter. He says, what value is it for, for you to live by the faith of God if, if everything is going fine. The real value is when things aren't going well, when you're being persecuted for no reason whatsoever. What's challenging is to stand by God even when things aren't going your way 
And, and even when he decides not to rescue you, even if you think he needs to be re- you need to be rescued. What's challenging is to live by the character of God, not just his power. What's challenging is to face, faithfully stand with Jesus, even when he doesn't rescue us from very difficult situations. See, we live in a time when, when, I hear this all the time, a common invective against God begins with these words. What kind of God would, and then you just fill in the blank. And that blank is always filled with some person's, with, the versions, uh, with, with their version of the way they think God ought to act. It's always followed by that person's version of who they think God should be and how they should behave, which in effect makes them God in their own mind. Do you understand that? God is not behaving the way I think he should. He should behave this way. Therefore, I'm not going to believe in him. What God could possibly behave that way? I have a better way. Well, you just said you're God. That's just the way it is. You just said you're God. Why don't you just come clean and admit it? You worship yourself. That was me 30 years ago. That was me 30 years ago. I knew nothing about God. Nothing. Yet I proclaimed to the world that I had a better idea for everything that he was doing. And doing wrong, I might add. The Bible calls this foolishness. God had no trouble calling me a fool that I was engaging in folly. It's a humbling experience. See, the boys understood Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So what happens? Verses 19 through 25. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind the boys and cast them into the fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. They didn't even bother to take their clothes off, which would have been valuable, and they were thrown, in, uh, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I hope they had a good insurance policy for that. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Now, verse 19, again, I think indicates that Nebuchadnezzar was really hoping that they would change their mind because he finds them valuable. But they didn't, and so that just made him even more angry. So he says, all right, heat up the fire so that it's seven times hotter than usual. Let me just, let me... being thrown in a fiery furnace, I imagine, is not going to be a fun, t- a fun thing. But I will tell you that you're doing somebody a favor if you throw them into a fiery furnace that's hotter rather than just sort of on what's known as the slow burn. In the first century, when they would persecute and execute Christians by burning them at the stake, they would burn them either by what is known as the slow burn or the fast burn. And it always fascinated me that the people that they found to be the most heretical, the, 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 the Romans trying to kill the Christians, the Christians that they found to be the most heretical, the most rebellious, they would give them the fast burn. I think they're just doing them a favor at that point. There's a uh, pastor of a church named Polycarp uh, towards the end of the first century, I think it was, and they burned him at the stake, and they did the slow burn, and they had this thing down to a science where it took 20 minutes for the person being burned at the stake to die. 20 minutes. Imagine the agony of that. Polycarp stood there as he was burning and he preached the gospel while he was burning and he preached it to the people who were burning him. So at this point, I think they're doing him a favor. They're doing the boys a favor by heating it up hotter. And what they would do is uh, they had a, a hole at the top of this furnace where they would throw people in. And apparently when they opened that hole, the flames came up and engulfed the guys that were throwing him in. Yet they somehow managed to get the three boys thrown in there. And then there was always a a window on the side from which you could stand down on the ground and you could look into the furnace and see what's going on inside of the furnace. Now, I think it's, um, uh, let me see. Okay, I didn't quite finish that, did I? No. Let me go to verses 24 and 25. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. 
what's the problem? <laughs> and he answered and said, I see four men unbound walking around in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is, like, is one like the son of gods, son of the gods. So here's what we can't miss from this. Most people believe that this was a pre-incarnate Jesus. Certainly, Nebuchadnezzar, later on, we'll find out, thinks it was an angel. But most scholars would say this is a pre-incarnate Jesus who went into the fire with them. And so here's what I want you to see. These boys stood by the character of God, and now God is standing by them. Whether it's a pre-incarnate Jesus or an angel, whatever it is, God is now standing by them in the fiery furnace. Okay? Last five verses, and then we'll unpack some pretty good application. Then Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come. Interesting. You see the switch? What God will be able to save you? And now he's identifying them as the servants of the Most High God. Come out and come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And all the bureaucrats gathered together and sat at the, uh, and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. You ever talk to somebody who's had a cigarette in the last hour? You can smell that, right? So, it, nothing. These guys came out, Nothing. It didn't even ask for a glass of water, okay? It's just fascinating to me. Nebuchadnezzar answered them, and he said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than to serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn from limb to limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted the boys in the province of Babylon. So apparently Nebuchadnezzar is still on that fear-based management stuff, if you notice, okay? So th this fear-based management stuff is not working for Nebuchadnezzar, yet he continues to lean into it. What's the definition of insanity? Keep doing the same thing over and over and over and expect different results. Nebuchadnezzar, as great as he was, was a little bit maybe touched. Okay, he had some challenges. And Nebuchadnezzar, although it sounds like he's making progress, and I think he is, he still does not fear Yahweh, the Lord God himself. All he's doing is he's saying, listen, the, gods of Shad the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is very powerful. I recognize that, and I don't want anybody to harm these boys or insult their God. Yet, Nebuchadnezzar has yet to lay his own life in the hands of the one true God. But there's a progression. Scholars cite that there's a progression from the end of chapter 2 to the end of chapter 3. It's like he's getting it a little bit more, but he's still blinded. And then by the time... You get to the end of chapter 4, we could have a full-blown Nebuchadnezzar conversion, but you're going to have to come back next week to see that. But there's a passage in the New Testament. Every time I read this story, it just, it just blows up in front of me. And, and I want you to go there, and, and I want to I unpack that a little bit, because I think it will be helpful to us. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In those Bibles under the seats, it's page 627. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. And it's the first six verses of chapter 4. And, and I, I just see a direct correlation between this story. Not necessarily that this was on Paul's mind. In fact, I would suggest it wasn't probably. But there are so many correlations here. So I just want to work through this. Starting with verse 1 of chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. Paul writes, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now, what ministry is Paul talking about? Well, he's talking about, according to chapter 3, if you read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he's talking about the ministry of hope and grace through the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So it's the ministry of hope and grace. It's the hope 
that is brought about by the grace of God through his son Jesus. That grace being manifested in the fact that Jesus went to the cross and died on the cross as a payment for our sins. So that we wouldn't have to do anything to get right with God, to be reconciled with God. We don't have to do anything about our sin other than put our lives in Jesus' hands. It's the great exchange. We exchange our sin, that goes to Jesus, and he gives us his righteousness. That comes to us. And believe it or not, I know this is hard for, I, I wrestle with this all the time. If you're in Christ right now, if you're a follower of Christ, you are seen by God right now as righteous, as holy. I know some of you are sitting next to other people going, that can't possibly be true. But it is. He sees them as holy and righteous. And you too, if you're in Christ. And Paul says in verse 1 there, he says, we do not lose heart. That is a New Testament Pauline way of saying the word hope. We have hope. We do not lose heart. And, and, and I want to explain to you that, that biblical hope is really different than worldly hope. We have to understand that the hope that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5 is a biblical hope based on the gospel and not a worldly hope, and there is a huge difference. Here's worldly hope. Worldly hope is what we want, but we are not certain that it's going to happen. In fact, it's probably likely that it won't happen. So we hope for things that are not certain and will probably not happen, but we still hope for them anyway. So we hope, you know, we hope, we hope. We hope that the Cardinals will somehow win a Super Bowl. We hope that we'll get a raise without more responsibility. We hope that we won't See the Kardashians on television when we're flipping around today. I got my first amen today on that comment. That's awesome. Here you go. We hope our version of God, the version of God that we've constructed in our own minds, is going to pan out for us. We hope our idols will save us from whatever it is that we need saving from or that we think we need saving from. Biblical hope, however is found in the resurrected Christ who already has victory over sin and death. He already has victory. So biblical hope is a sure thing. We have a certainty about this. It's true, we're living here on earth and we're fighting these battles. Ephesians 6 says that we are born into a spiritual war and we have to fight this spiritual war by the power of Christ. So it doesn't feel like we've won yet, but we have won. In Christ, we have won. We have the victory in Christ. We're just waiting for it to happen. And in that new Jerusalem, it will happen. It will happen. Uh, one guy says it this way, the, uh, the Christ followers who are here on earth, alive right now, are as assured of heaven as the saints who are already there. And that's the kind of hope that these boys had. That's the kind of hope that these boys had that allowed them to be able to stand up and say, but even if God doesn't save us, Nebuchadnezzar, we're not going to follow your decree. They had biblical hope. They had a hope in something that was other than the frailty of this world. And then look at verse 2, what Paul says there. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, doesn't that verse sound like what the boys are doing here? They are renouncing idolatry, which, is, which again, I would suggest to you is one of the big sins. And I know some people want to push back against that. Oh, all sin is the same you know, if you sin in one area, you're just a sinner, and all sin is exactly the same. Well, yeah, you can argue theologically that that's true. But if all sin were the same, it seems to me that God wouldn't be so freaked out about some sin, my language, freaked out about some sin that he tends to write about a lot more in the Bible. 
And idolatry is one of those sins that he writes about a lot in the Bible. You can't open, it seems like, any book of the Bible without engaging in the fact that idolatry is a problem. And here are the boys renouncing idolatry. They're saying, we're not going to do it. And, and they are commending themselves, not by saying, look at us, but they're commending themselves by saying, we believe in God. And the reason they can do this is the same reason that Paul writes here in, in verse 2. God is with them and God is in them. And notice the language that, God, that Paul uses. He says, we do not tamper with the word of God. That, that, that phrase in the Greek literally means that we do not fix anything, we do not mix anything ungodly with the word of God. We don't take any foreign ideology and mix it with what we know about God to come up with some new religion. In other words, we do not engage what's in, in what's known as syncretism. Anybody heard that word, syncretism? It's all over our culture. Now, now, the word may not be familiar to you, but the practice of it is. Syncretism is, is when a person uh, takes a look at Christianity and says, ooh, I like this part of Christianity, and I like this part. I like the love part and the forgiveness part. And then they move over here to Buddhism, and they, oh, I like this part of Buddhism over here, the, the peacemaking and the passive, and I like all that. And, and then they move over here to New Age philosophy, and they just keep moving around to all the different religions, and they only extract what they like and all that sin stuff and that talk of hell and that judgment and all that, man, that, that stuff where God gets upset, about, you know, that stuff we just lay aside. And, and, and so what they do is they synchronize all of this stuff into one new religion and then they say, this is my version of, of who God is. And that's, that's how I get along. And that way I don't ever have to be judged for anything. Uh, John Orberg talks about how there's a woman that he met who actually started a new religion called Sheilaism. Guess what her name was? Sheila, yeah, that's exactly right. She said, I I'll just tell you right now, I just went around all the religions, picked out what I like, mixed it all together, nobody's done it quite like me, and this is Sheilaism, and this is the way I worship. That's syncretism, okay? This is the wisdom of man, which is foolishness to God, 1 Corinthians tells us. And we're not supposed to do it. God, again, God calls this folly. He calls this foolishness. So, it leads to destruction and death, and that's why Paul rails against it, and God says we shouldn't do it. Verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Again, you see the connection to Nebuchadnezzar and his guys, his, his bureaucrats. The gospel is nonsense to some people. The wisdom of God is foolishness to man. Again, we're told that in 1 Corinthians with some people, no matter how clear the message of God is to them, they miss it. It's veiled to them. It's like they can't see anything. The boys here in Daniel chapter 3 have a clear message from God for Nebuchadnezzar, yet he misses it. Yes, at the end of this episode, after this miraculous event, after this miraculous demonstration of God's authority, Nebuchadnezzar says, don't mess with the God of these boys, but he's still not convinced to put his own life in the hands of the one true God. The gospel is still veiled to Nebuchadnezzar, and as a result, he is still, at this point, counted among the perishing. Verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So, we have the image of God in this chapter. It's the fourth person that is in the furnace, whether it's the pre-incarnate Jesus or whatever. It's, it's a representation of God in the furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar saw him, and Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges that something special has happened, yet the God of his world continues to blind Nebuchadnezzar to the reality of who God should be in his life. Now, again, we'll find out next week. Here you go. We'll find out clearly next week that the God of his world is actually Nebuchadnezzar himself. The language in, in chapter 4 that Nebuchadnezzar uses about himself is stark and certain. He thinks he's God. He thinks that there is nobody more powerful than he is. He worships himself. He idolizes himself. He exalts himself even above the traditional Babylonian gods. And for us, that's pretty much the same manifestation of the God of this world. 
Ultimately, our idols stem from the biggest idol in our, our lives, which is ourself. And we live in a culture that tells us to worship yourself. You're, you're worthy. You're awesome. You're wonderful. You're special. You should take care of yourself. Believe in yourself. Honor and exalt yourself. Worship at the altar of self. It's, it's, it's the reason so many people want to argue with the wisdom of God. They believe that they have the world figured out better than God does. Again, that was me 30 years ago. And again, it's so often why we hear statements that begin with these words. My God would never, and then fill in the blank. It's just a variation on the earlier statement. It's the old saying coming true. God created man in his, in his image, and we have been returning the favor ever since. If you, if you by the way, I, I, you know, I, I can't help but love Morgan Freeman as an actor. He is just tremendous. He really is. But did you see the interview lately with him? You know, where he's flirting with this idea that he's God, you know? But, but then if you go into the interview and you start to unpack it, it's exactly, this is exactly what he talks about here. He says, he says, yeah, I believe there is a God, maybe the one that created us in his, in his image, but really it's probably the God that we have created in our image. And Morgan Freeman just admits it. We create gods in our image all the time. But again, this is a false God, and false gods never fail to fail. I, I've been running for 39 years, not from anything, just, you know, running for exercise, you know, witness protection program. Anyway, I've been running for 39 years. You, you realize that at some point, I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet, frankly, but at some point, my body's going to fail me. So if running is my God, I'm going to be betrayed by that at some point. That's just the way it is. Verse 5. Gosh, I wish I could find these. There we go. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now again, is that not what the boys did here? Not once did they draw attention to themselves. Instead, they just kept saying, Nebuchadnezzar, it's all God, it's all God. And then verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And there you have it. Because the boys didn't proclaim themselves, but instead proclaimed God, the light of God has shown through the darkness. And it was unmistakable. You, you notice that Nebuchadnezzar, here you go. Just, I think this is an interesting point that, that needs to be said. You notice that Nebuchadnezzar did not pull them out of the fire and then say, well, that didn't work. Let's try something else. Quick, let's go down to the Euphrates and try to drown them, okay? The light had shone in the darkness. Nebuchadnezzar knew that something had, powerful had happened. And so the light had shone brightly through the faith of these boys. Nebuchadnezzar knew he was out of his league, at least for the moment anyway. Next week we'll find that he's still thinking that he's in a league of his own, though. Now, as I wrap up, I want to just say this. I, I must admit, we have a challenge here in these, in these Daniel chapters. We really do. Here's the challenge. Things always turn out well for Daniel and the boys. They do. Every single time. It's a Hollywood ending at the end of every one of these first six chapters. Every single time. And the challenge, is, uh, the challenge comes because it makes us think that that's the way things ought to go for us too. It happened that way for Daniel. It happened that way for the boys. So that's the way it's supposed to happen for us. Right? But when we come to God... For only the reason by which we expect him to do something for, for us, from our perspective, we're going to end up being disappointed because he has a different perspective than us. Tells us in Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. Remember, the, the boys proclaimed the power of God, but they did not presume on the power of God. We must remember the key to chapter 3 is verse 18. The boys were willing to let God not deliver them from the furnace. They said, here we go. Going to die of something. Might as well go do this. Okay. Jesus was 
The same on the cross. He was willing to go all the way and die. Do you understand that? He did not presume upon the power of God. That's what that whole prayer in Gethsemane was about. He said, he said the same thing that the boy said in verses 17 and 18. He said, God is able to deliver me from this. God, I know you can deliver me from this. If there's a plan B where you deliver me from this crucifixion thing, let's look at it. But even if you don't, not my will, God, but your will be done. That was the power under which Jesus went to the cross. It's the same power under which these boys entered the fiery furnace. Neither the boys nor Jesus did this under their own human earthly power. But here's the key to this whole thing. Some of us look at that and we say, well, then Jesus is a wonderful example of who we ought to be in life. No! That's an incomplete view of Jesus. Jesus was just a good teacher. Jesus was a moral man. Jesus was a sage for the age. Jesus is a good example. No, that is an inadequate and incomplete view of Jesus. Yes, he was those things. But if that's the only view you have of Jesus, it's incomplete, inadequate. It will not do you any good. Rather, he was God. He was creator, redeemer, sustainer, forgiver. And his own language says that. You have to read the Gospels. I am so tired. Although I do great facial management when people say it to me, I am still so tired of people saying, Jesus never said he was God. You haven't read the Gospels. It's why they killed him. He is God. And that's where he got his power. From the Father to be able to do this. Here's why you can't just keep Jesus as an example or as a good teacher or as a moral man. Because it allows you to continue to be in control, or so you think. The minute you admit that Jesus is God, it means that you must relinquish control. And I want you to understand, there isn't anybody in here who's not a control freak. I just laugh when somebody says, yeah, you know Joe over there? Yeah, what a control freak. We're all control freaks. That's why we don't like Jesus as God. That's why we like him as a moral man, a good teacher, and an example to follow because that keeps us in control. The truth is, our power is actually found in our weakness. Paul says that. In my weakness, I find strength. In my weakness, I find the grace that is sufficient to give me power to live. Our inability to save ourselves from our sin is actually our greatest power if we would just recognize that. Our inability to be in control is our greatest power if we would just admit that. That's why we have to give our lives to Jesus. That's the good news. It's that great exchange. Our sin for his righteousness. Let's pray and Rob will come up and lead us into response time. God, thank you for your grace and your power. God, thank you for the faith of these boys. Help us to know that it is only when we come to the end of ourselves and our idols and our false gods that we will find true power, true deliverance, true salvation, true forgiveness. And that is in you through your Son, and it's by your Spirit we come to you. Amen.